what I'll talk about today will build on what I talked about last week. We talked about how in church we need to make sure we know what our BFF is, not our best friend forever, but our biblical foundation for relationship. That's what we talked about last week. God created us to live in community with one another. He did. He didn't create anybody to live in isolation. You've probably maybe been in those times in your life where you just felt so alone. Maybe you felt like nobody cared, nobody would notice if you weren't around. But God never designed it to be that way. He wants us to live together in community, and it's not just as neat as coming together as the church. It's not just coming together as the church and being involved in the life of the church and what we're doing, even through our our life groups, because the goal as Christians isn't to get everybody into a life group. That's not what we're trying to do as the church. What we're trying to do is to take what Jesus commands seriously and to go out and to make disciples who can make disciples so that more people can come to know Jesus. And the way that we do that is when we're living life together in community with one another so that we can be supported, so that we know that we're loved and we know that we're cared for. And maybe we can do that out of the, outside of the context sometimes of the formal or the official things that we do as the church. But what I find to be true is that often we're not as good at doing the things that God created us to do as we should be. So we need that support system that's around us. We need people in our life that can speak truth to us, that can help me, that can help you when it comes to our faith. We were reminded very uh, dramatically about how evil is in the world, alive and well today through the events that happened in Las Vegas this past week. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you woke up and your spouse told you the news about, hey, there was an event and over 50 people are dead. And a lot of times we can talk about that through, well, that was somebody who was mentally ill. There was something that was wrong with their brain, and that's why they would go out and commit this unspeakable evil. Now, I know, know in some cases that is true, and people, when their brain's not working right, can do things that we could never make any sense of. But I don't think it's fair to write off everything that happens like that as somebody was mentally unstable. Now, I won't disagree that they were unstable. But really what we have to recognize in this world is that there is evil. Evil exists and the face of evil is all over the place. And I have no explanation when people create, commit these heinous acts than evil. Some people are just evil. That may sound kind of harsh to say, and maybe we're not supposed to say that in the culture that we live in, but there are evil people in the world that want to go out and to commit evil things. What God has called for us to do as the church is to combat the evil with good, not just moral good that comes from the world or the community around us, but what God has told us to do is to combat that with the love of Jesus. Jesus told us very clearly, and I'll read the scripture later in John, he says, people will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Everything that we make sure that we want to do as a church has to be consistent with the love that God has commanded for us to show to the world that's around us. And how do we stop these evil things from happening? Well, honestly, this side of heaven, there's always going to be evil. There are always going to be things that I can't wrap my head or my heart around when they happen because it's not the way that God intended for the world to be. But sin came in and it made everything different. But what God has called us to do is he's called us to live a life that is disciplined. And God, as his people, has called us to live a life of obedience, where we take the things that God has taught us, that he is teaching us, that he is commanding us to do, and we go out and we do those 
the best way that we can, following the leading of the Spirit and how he's going to teach us and how he's going to guide us. So what better thing for us to be able to talk about, to give ourselves the vocabulary in a world that's filled with heartache and tragedy and unspeakable evil than to know our biblical foundation, what that rests on and who we are and what we're to do. And then not just knowing it, but living it so that we get some practical ways about how we can impact the world for Jesus. We can't save everybody. We can't help everybody. We can help somebody, and we can help someone. And when we're paying attention to what God is calling for us to do as the church, we'll see those opportunities. Very clearly, we believe that we're designed to be in relationship with God first and foremost. And secondly, we're designed to be in relationship with one another. The purpose of the church is to make disciples who can make disciples. That's why we want to be disciples who love God and others, bear fruit and equip others for service. And we do this understanding that the currency that Jesus dealt with was relationships. And we're to live life in community with one another. And relationships Godly, biblical, loving, edifying relationships help me to grow in my faith. They help me to become stronger in who I am as a believer and a Christian in every aspect that I have. That's why I want you to understand that relationships is what Jesus dealt in. It's how he invested in his disciples. He let them know he cared about them. He spent time with them. He taught them. He sent them out to work. He corrected them. He let them fail, and he coached them through that. But it's never just about one ministry or one thing. What we want to do is we want to live life together in a relationship in the context of people that love and care for us. But it's not just about life groups. It's not just about Sunday school classes. or not just about being involved in service or ministry. Those are good things. But what those, those are just the vehicle. It's not the destination. Hear me. It's the conduit that is hopefully going to get us to become mature Christians who as we spend time with one another are sharpened by one another. I, I saw discipleship. In fact, it was just this morning, so I added it in and I wrote it down. One of, uh, a guy I know uh, defined, said it this way. He said, discipleship is, when you take at your, discipleship is when you take lordship as seriously as you do your salvation. Discipleship is when you take lordship as seriously as your salvation because when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to the Bible and all the pictures we have of following after Jesus, Conversion and discipleship go hand in hand. They're not separate events. It would expect that they would go together, and you really can't have one without the other one coming along. There's this expectation in Scripture. And when I say that here, there's this expectation from God that when I come to follow Jesus, that when I'm convicted by the Spirit and I lay my life down to follow after Jesus, that my life is going to be changed. And we do that through the context of discipleship when we take the lordship of Jesus just as seriously as we take our salvation, because we all want to get to heaven. When that role is called up yonder, we want to be there, right? That's what the song says, and appropriately so. And we want as many people as possible to come with us. Why? Because that's God's heart. God wants as many people as possible to be a part of his kingdom. But we have to, we can't afford to forget or to act like or to live out that, yeah, I'm saved by Jesus, but I don't want him as Lord. I don't want to have to listen to what he said to do. I don't want to have to take his teachings seriously because that will inconvenience my life. 
That will change how I make my decisions. That will change how I orient my time. That will change how I steward my, my resources that I have. But we have to take that seriously. There's, there's no other way. Dis- biblical discipleship, my growth, your growth, our growth as the church and Christians happens. And there's these three roles that always play a part in all of our relationships. There's my part. There's your part. And there's God's part. In every relationship you have with other believers and in the church, there's always my part and your part and God's part. That plays true with everybody. You've heard me say this before, and it's true, and I'll say it again. I have a hard enough time taking care of my part, let alone your part. I can't do it. I certainly can't do God's part. But what I do know is that God is faithful. Amen? Amen is a churchy word that we use, and it means let it be so. God is faithful. And we know that God is going to do his part. He's going to keep his end of the bargain. So I know that God is always going to do his part. But what I want to do is make sure that I'm doing my part. But I can no better do your part than I can God's part. And that same thing holds true for you and anybody you have a conversation with, your spouse, your friend, your kid, whatever. You, I want to do my part and do what God has called for me to obedient to do where I stay in the bounds of Scripture. I'm going to take what God has taught, the foundation that God has laid, And I want to live that out. And I want to be obedient where God is telling me to be obedient, even when it doesn't make sense to the world. And what I hope is that Richard is also going to be obedient and do his part in his relationship with me and then in his relationship with God and also his relationship with his wife and his kids and his grandkids and all the people that he influences through his work. And the same is true for all of you. It can be easy for us, and I know it is for me, to focus on the things that I can't control, to get kind of tense and anxious about the things that I can't, I have no bearing on. But what God has called for me to do, and there's peace in this, friends. I've got to be be obedient with the things that God has entrusted me to, to the things that he has taught me, with the things that God has asked for me to do, because it's always my part and their part and God's part. If I can focus on my part, and sometimes my part is investing in you and investing in other people and trusting God to do his part, because I know that he will. There's a story that's told a couple different times in the Old Testament. I'm not going to turn to the passage and read it. It happens in two different places, in Exodus chapter 20 and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. It's where we have the giving of the Ten Commandments that are given to the people of Israel. People are people from the very beginning of time until now. We mess up. We don't do the things that God wants for us to do, so he has to give us laws and regulations for us to live by. So in Exodus 17 or Exodus 20, We have the Ten Commandments that are given to God's people because sin is running rampant and God is trying to give them some parameters, not to prohibit, but to protect. God is trying to protect us. He's trying to keep us safe. He's trying to keep us from harming our relationship with him and our relationship with other people. So that's God's intent when he gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus. And if I were to run through those, they're all based in relationship with God and relationship with other people, every single one of them. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, why did God tell us that? Because if I have another God before him, that breaks my relationship with God, and that's inconsistent with love. Jesus says, if you'll love me, you'll keep my commands. So if I put another person or another thing or another anything, good, bad, or indifferent, anything I put in the place of God that is not God becomes an idol. God says, you'll have no gods before me, because if you do, that breaks relationship, and that's inconsistent with love. The second commandment, God says, you'll have no idols and do not worship them. Why? Because if you worship something that's not God, it's sinful. And it breaks my relationship with God. I'm giving honor, attention, glory, respect to something that doesn't deserve it. And that's inconsistent with the love that God tells us that we're to have for him and the love to have for other people. God also told his people, he said, don't misuse the name of God. 
because that harms our relationship with God and others, and it's inconsistent with love. Now we have some positive ones where Jesus or God tells us to remember the Sabbath, and he tells us to do that because that honors our relationship with God and how he designed us and how he created us where we do need rest at times. And that's consistent with the love that God has for us, and he wants us to show that to other people. When God told his people, he said, honor your father and your mother because that helps relationships. It builds your relationships, and that's consistent with love. And the other ones you could run through, it says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony against your neighbor, don't covet the things that your neighbor has because those things kill and break and harm relationship, and they're inconsistent with the love that we're to have for one another. So in Exodus 20, God gives the Ten Commandments to his people. And then again in the book of Deuteronomy, which is a second giving of the law. That's what the, the name Deuteronomy means. Because enough people had lived and died that generations had been raised up and they'd forgotten what God had told them. So they had to give it to them again. Remember when I said earlier, people are people from the beginning until now. And God teaches us something and then we forget and he has to teach us again. He does the same thing with me. What about y'all? <laughs> He says, Joel, you should know that by now, but here, let me remind you again. Sometimes God does that gently. Sometimes he does it not so gently because I require it. <laughs> where God has to teach us again, and that's what happens in Deuteronomy 5 where the law is given again so that the people can maintain their relationship with God and their relationship with other people. In fact, there's a couple other passages um, I'm going to read. Um, the first I'm going to turn to Galatians chapter 5. It's familiar to, to us church folk. Galatians 5, verses 22 and following. Uh, what happens right before that, Paul, as he's writing to the church, um, he describes to them a life that is awful. If you look at the passages right before what I'm going to read here in Galatians, he describes a life that's terrible, and you would read all of these attributes, and you say, I don't want a life that is like that. But what happens in Galatians chapter 3, verses, or Galatians 5, Verses 22 and 23, after he talks about not living according to the flesh, according to my gut, according to the things that I want, but live, according, live your life according to how God has designed us to live. We, we need different earmarks. We need different descriptions of us as believers. So not to live a life of uh, idolatry and sorcery, and enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and dissension and divisions and envy, but instead... Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucify is a pretty strong word. You know, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure that out. Jesus was, was crucified, a brutal, awful, embarrassing death. Yet what Paul does when he's talking to the church, he says, when we live a life following after Jesus now, but the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. And he says, and those who belong to Jesus, he's talking to believers, he's talking to the church, friends, he's talking to you, and he's, he's definitely talking to me. He says, those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So my tendency to sin, my tendency to ignore what God has told me to do, get rid of it. Crucify it, murder, kill it, get rid of it, trust God with it, and to follow after God. And all of those attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, that evidence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in my life, they are lived out in the context of loving relationships with other people. 
not just believers, but people who are not yet Christians. I'm not always an optimist, but I like to be when it comes to my faith and when it comes to eternity. They're not non-Christians. They're not yet Christians, right? Just parsing words. I'm a preacher. It's what we do. But I, I like to look at it that way. They're not yet Christians, but they could be. They might be. Maybe if I was willing to talk to them about my faith, to talk to them about Jesus, to just open a Bible and to show somebody how to read the word, why Jesus is so important, why coming together and living life together in community and having a biblical foundation for everything matters so much. We have this little book called James in the New Testament. I'm going to read from James chapter 3. It's the equivalent of our, our wisdom book in the New Testament. There's some books of wisdom that from the Old Testament. Now, it's true. All of this is God's wisdom that comes from us. But James is very practical uh, and very everyday life. In James chapter 3, uh, verses 17 and 18, we'll read like this. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle. This teaching, this truth that we have from God should be the thing that everybody wants. And it's not yet, not only what God told us to do, but it's how he told us to go about doing that, living life together and loving relationships, caring for one another with Jesus as the focus. Every event, if you look in the life of Jesus, from any of the Gospels, choose whichever one's your favorite or put them all together. Every event, everything that Jesus does, every interaction that Jesus has, he's focused on the cross. And he's looking at you through the lens of the cross because that's the only way that God can look at me and not see my sin was because of the cross. So what I'm called to do is to be like Jesus and to look at other people as Jesus did, to have compassion and mercy on them, to have gentleness towards them, and yet to make sure that I'm boldly, boldly talking about the truth and not withholding truth from anybody. So this wisdom that comes from above, we've got to make sure that we follow it. God's ways are so much better than my ways. They're higher than my ways, and a lot of times I can't understand them, but what I can do is if I recognize that I trust God to be faithful and true. Even when I can't wrap my brain or my heart around it, I can know that God is trustworthy, and that even if I don't understand, I can still do and I can still obey. I'm going to read again, um, I referenced this earlier from the Gospel of John, but John chapter 13, verses 34 and A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if, there's a qualifier, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, biblical love 
the love that God commands for us to have for other people and romantic love are different things. They're very different. Really, this idea of, of biblical love is a command that God gives for us where we make a decision because God told me to, and even if I can't understand it, even if I don't want to do it, God tells me that we're to love other people, and that's how people are going to know that we're disciples. That's how people are going to know that we are Christians, by the love that we have for other people, not just the people that we like, but for anybody. Anybody else see that? All right, good, good. Yeah, Tommy, yeah, sorry. Too late, buddy, too late. God loves us all the time. He's not ignorant or indifferent to our shortcomings and how much I mess up. But he still chooses us to love us because that's just who he is. He has to. It just kind of goes with his nature. He loves. And that's what he calls for us to do, to be the light of the world, to be the city on a hill so that people can see us, so they can look to us and not just see us, but to see Jesus. And there's a twisted view of love that our world has. It says, well, just love people. Just love. That's all you got to do is love. Well, it is, but it's biblical, godly love. That Jesus balances perfectly is the perfect balance of grace and truth. To have grace with us as sinners that need to be saved by his grace, but having the truth and not withholding things that are true from me just because it's going to hurt my feelings or it's going to offend the way that I choose to live my life or it's going to make me mad but having genuine love for one another. I'm going to turn from John to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, and start reading verse 8. Paul writing to the Christians in the city of Rome who are going to be oppressed by the government um, because of their faith and the things that they believe in. Uh, he goes on to say this. He says, owe no one anything except what? To love. We owe it to one another to love other people. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who has love has fulfilled the law. And friends, that goes in line pretty closely with what Jesus says, Right? says the greatest commandment is what? To love God and to love other people. Paul says don't owe anybody anything except for love because he who has love fulfills all of the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. We owe it to one another to display love. Not because anybody necessarily deserves it, but because they need it so badly. And anytime I find myself forgetting that, a quick reminder that I get is that I need God's love so badly. Even though I don't deserve it, even though I've done things to discredit myself from having it or having God even care for me, God still chooses to love because that's who he is. And if I want to reflect 
because I do want to reflect God and his love to other people. I've got to be willing to choose to love others, even when it's hard, even when it's unspeakably hard. God calls for us to love not just the likable or the ones that we get along with, but our enemies, to the people that bother us, to the people that maybe you feel like they're never going to change. They've heard about Jesus. They know the stories. But to say that somebody is never going to change really would be to say that the power of the Holy Spirit can't convict them. Like God can't draw them to him and to have them saved by the blood of Jesus. And to say that is to cheapen the work that Jesus did on the cross. And I just can't bring myself to do it, even though sometimes I want to. (laughs) What Jesus did is that he, he made disciples and he had a plan. I don't think he wrote it out, but he had a plan. He knew what he was doing. His actions were intentional. He invested in his disciples. He created a relational environment for his disciples so that they could trust him, so they could spend time together, so they could not only just hear what Jesus was teaching them, but that they could see Jesus live it out so that they could turn around and live it out as well. And he had an intentional method, and what Jesus is also doing is he's asking us to follow him. In fact, Jesus, there's two more passages of Scripture I'll read, and they both come from John 17. It's this prayer where Jesus is coming close to the end of his life. And he makes sure that he spends time in prayer. We have this long prayer in John 17. It's often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Or really what this focus is on of the unity of the church is what Jesus prays for in John 17. This great big long prayer that takes up a whole chapter that at least we think by our standards is long. It's Jesus praying for the unity of his followers. And it starts out like this. And this is right after Jesus said, the hour is coming where you're going to be scattered, talking to his followers. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to, to eternal life of all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now the Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had been with you before the world existed. Jesus came with his disciples, spending time with them in a relational environment with an intentional leader, doing something on purpose for a purpose. Yet here in John 17, he prays to the Father. He says, Father, I pray that you are glorified through my life, and yet I have accomplished what you sent me here to do. Now, one of the things, if I stop there for just a second, and I pause, when Jesus told the Father that I've I've done what you told me to accomplish, yet even just casually flipping through the pages of my Bible, I can see that at this point, um, Jesus hasn't been arrested. He hasn't been tried. He hasn't been crucified. He hasn't spent three days in the grave, and he hasn't been risen from the ground. Yet Jesus says to the Father, I have done what you sent me to do. What's Jesus talking about? I can come up with no other answer other than Jesus knew that he was going to be obedient to Jesus and go to the death on the cross. He knew that was his mission. He knew that's why God sent him, and that's why he came. But also what he's saying here in his prayer to Jesus, because he's certainly not lying. He's talking to the Father. He's not deceiving us as in God's word. It is true. 
He says, I've done what you've sent me to accomplish. What Jesus came to do is to save people from our sins. And that can only be done through his work on the cross. And how are people reached? What did Jesus do with his disciples? He established what you and I are a part of today. He established the church. He called out 12 and he invested in them. Even though he knew one of them was going to kill him, was going to betray him, he still chose to invest. And he trained his disciples so that they could be the ones that the church would be founded upon. Now, it's all God's work. It's all the power of the Spirit. But he trained his disciples, and they, they weren't completely ready, but they were ready. And he'd given them what they needed. He'd taught them the truth, and he'd showed them how to make more disciples. And that's why I believe right here, Jesus says, I've done what you sent me to accomplish. We're going to start the church. And it's going to happen on the shoulders of these men and really the women and all the believers who are there. And I've done what you sent me to do. And by my death on the cross, it's going to come in a couple days. All people will be able to come to have a saving relationship with the Father because of the church. And the church exists today because of discipleship. And it exists because of discipleship, because that was always Jesus' plan. And it's not our human endeavor, but it's always the supernatural power and the working of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important. That's why it matters. And that's why Jesus said, my work is complete, because I know the church is coming. It is always God's plan. It was never an afterthought to save us from our sin by the blood of Jesus, because we're a part of his bride. Not the end of John 17, a couple more verses. First, Jesus prays for himself and then his disciples and then anybody who will come to believe in him. Did you guys hear that? Jesus prayed for you in John 17. He did. He prayed for himself and he prayed for his disciples and he spent the most amount of time praying for people who would come to believe and that's you. And he prayed this. I do not ask for these only, talking about his disciples, but also for all who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I give to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that we may be perfectly one, so that the world will know that you sent me, and that I love them, even as you love In the face of death, Jesus prayed that for you. Everybody who would come to believe, may we be so united in our faith and our acts of obedience that the world has no answer other than clearly that is the work of a supernatural God, the supernatural God, by the things that the church is able to accomplish, by the things that Christians, you and I, who make up the body of Christ, his bride, are able to do. That's why Jesus could say, my work is complete, because he knew he was going to be obedient, and he knew he was going to go to the cross, but he knew he'd set in place, not just the what, but the how, of how people were going to come to a saving relationship with him, growing in relationship, in community, with one another, and that is our biblical foundation for why we come together. Let's pray. God, it can become pretty dangerous when we think we know what you have taught us. 
Because I know when I think I know something, even when it comes from your word, I can come to a place in your Bible and I can read it and I can kind of gloss over it and go, yeah, 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 I know that. I know that. God, I pray that your word convicts us through the power of your spirit. That we understand you and it's not, we just don't have to ask a million questions about, well, why do we have to do this, what God told us to do in scripture? Or sometimes we just, just give us the strength and the courage just to do it. <laughs> when we see the things that you've clearly told us how we're to behave and what we're to do and how we're to live and how our life's supposed to bear fruit, may we do those things. God, I pray that we don't look for excuses and you take those away. God, I'm so thankful for how you were there for us, to encourage us, to equip us. And that what you've done for us as a church is that we're here. Our job is to train up a spiritual army that we're going to release on the world so the more people can know Jesus in a life-saving, eternal way. God, I pray that when we hear your word, it becomes fresh and new, and you teach us every day. God, we love you. Thank you for Jesus and for choosing to use us in spite of our deficiencies and our shortcomings and how often we mess up, which is regularly. God, thank you for using Jesus so that you can look past those things and we can be forgiven and redeemed. God, we are unworthy, but thank you for loving us anyway. When we come across other people in this life who we feel like are unworthy, God, you remind us that we are to love them anyway. We love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.